start a brand new series in the book of Joshua. It's called Courageous. Everybody say it. Courageous. Say it. Courageous. It's the life you were meant to live. Take your Bible, go to the sixth book of the Bible, book of Joshua, and we're going to read it together. And uh, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the book of Joshua. So how would life be different if you were, courage, if you were courageous? How would you face life differently? How might the in- outcomes be if you were a courageous person? That's the question. If you had just the right stuff at just the right time, with all the right motives, the fortitude to move forward with really good intentions, how would life be? You've been in settings where people aren't courageous and you, you know something to do, you know it's the right thing to do, but you don't move because you, you don't want to be the first out, first in. So you don't move. But if other people moved, you might move. And here's the, here's the funniest part about this. If you're courageous, people around you will be courageous too. Now by definition, just uh, real quickly here, courage as I see it uh, by just definition is the mental and the moral strength not just of character, but of venture. A little different than character. It is to persevere and withstand danger. It's to be fearless in the face of challenge. It doesn't mean I can't do that because I'm scared. It means you actually do it even though you're scared. Okay? I, I met a guy who uh, was an army guy, and he jumped out of airplanes for a living. That's what he did. Yeah. And... I asked him one day, I said, uh, how many jumps? He told me how many jumps he'd done. I said, that's wonderful. I'm happy for you. I'm glad it's you, not me. And then yeah, everybody asked the guys who jump out of planes, why would you jump out of a perfectly operating plane? You know, right? Well, then I said, you ever scared? He goes, oh, yeah, I'm scared every time I jump. And then I thought, I had the coolest question in the world. The question was this, are any of your jumps night jumps? He said, Dave, all of them are night jumps. Because it's the only way he could muster the courage. He shut his eyes and launched out into the open wide sky. It is not that you aren't scared. It's being fearless in the midst of the situation, in the midst of that challenge. And it's to possess a holy kind of boldness. It's a confidence, but it's not a confidence in yourself. It's a confidence in God. And there is a touch of confidence in yourself to say, you know, I can do this. Can't do it alone. But with God, I can do it. That's the kind of courageous spirit we want to talk about the next dozen or so weeks. Now, I'm in Joshua chapter 1. I'll read it aloud. You read silently as I read aloud. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, stop right there. If you ever hear from God and he tells you his friends, your friends have died, that's not a good message, right? Like, hello, this is God. Your friends are dead. Oh, I am next. No, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, all the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses so I'll be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So be strong and courageous. Why? Because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give to them. He says, you be strong, you be courageous. By the way, that word courage, courageous, appears more times in Joshua than any other book of the Bible, in the English Bible. It is the central theme 
to this, uh, uh, to this life study of the book of, of the guy named Joshua. Now, this guy Joshua, he will go into the promised land, he'll conquer the land, take it over, but he does it, let me just, I'm, I'm going to encourage you just to flip through the pages and take some notes. He does it in one impossible situation after another, and it does take strength, verse 6, and courage. First, what I see is the story of this courageous man, Joshua. The first thing I see is that he starts with an impossible mission. He's got to cross the Jordan River, verses 10 and 11. He, so he orders the people. He says, in three days, we're going to break camp. We're going to cross the, the Jordan, which is a, a, a big river, but it's a lot of people. It's tens and tens of thousands of people. They're going to go possess the land, but first he's got to get across a treacherous river, and God has promised that land, but they're on the wrong side of the river. And you, you know, rivers can be deadly. We've seen that in the news just this week. Joshua will cross with the people, it, even though it's treacherous, deadly. Some say it was flood stage, some say not so much, but, but you're taking thousands of people across. This is treacherous no matter what season is. And they'll cross safely and they'll thank God. They'll even put together a memorial, but that's not all that happens. As soon as they get across, they'll conquer the first city because Joshua will fit the battle of, say it, Jericho. How would you like to be known for only one thing that you did in your life? That's Joshua. He's kind of known for, he took the city of Jericho, and he did with the miraculous work of God and with the, the great marching band of Israel. They knocked it down. Then the Lord said, Joshua chapter 6, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with the king and the fighting men. And so they take the city down. We'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. They'll go around the city each day. Final day, they blow the horns. Walls go down. Happy day for Israel. Really sad day for Jericho. It, and then, not only does he take the impossible city, but he redirects God's people to worship. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30, it says, Then Joshua built a mount on Mount Ebal, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, even in the midst of establishing the land, even in the midst of taking over this property and invading it at, like an outsider to get their own space, Joshua models for the people the value and importance of worship. They learn early on in their days to stop and honor God. To stop and honor God. If you're going to be a conqueror, someone who's courageous, you have to regularly stop and honor God. But that's not all that happens because there'll be times that, that like any great achievement, is really complicated with friends and relationships. And that happened with Joshua. He had some allies out there. Some were meant to be made and some were not. But nonetheless, he had allies. Chapter 10, he goes on an all-night march from Gilgal and he takes the, the country by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. Chapter 10, verse 10. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Joshua was loyal to be supportive of his friends and to, to march, even if it meant marching through the night. That's a loyal friend. That's a friend you can call at two in the morning. That's the kind of friend you want to be. It's the kind of friend you want to have. So Joshua, he, he starts by crossing the river, gets there, knocks down the impossible city of Jericho, redirects people to worship, but still supports the allies that he has. And he, and he takes control of the whole region. Later in chapter 10, verse 40, <coughs> it says he'll, he'll subdue the whole region, including the hill country. So he doesn't take just the easy sections. He takes the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, and the kings. So he's taking not only property, but the kings, the political system as well. 
He is taking over, and not just the easy places. That's important to get. He takes control of the entire region, and like any campaign, he secures it for the sake of the victory, and he never settles. What I find is you never see him settling down and saying, well, this is good enough, and then stopping. There will always be new regions to take. And what I find interesting is that even in the midst of taking property, he's still extending friendship to this friend because he has a buddy he's lived with probably his whole life. His name's Caleb. And Caleb now is 80 years of age. Caleb and Joshua will have gone to spy this property 40 years ago when Caleb was about 40 years old. Now he goes into the property. He's now 80. And Caleb says, I want the hill country. He says, I'm still young. I still got vigor. I still got what it takes. He, Caleb, you're 80. Yeah, I want the tough parts. And he's, he's kind to his buddies and his friends, even in the midst of um, this, this huge project. That's the story of Joshua's life, being loyal to his friends his entire life. And he reaffirms why he is that way. It's because he's loyal to the Lord for the, sec, for the sake of the reputation of the Lord. Chapter 23, end of the book, after a long time had passed, the Lord had given Israel rest, that's an important word, from the enemies around them. He gives them rest. In other words, there's a sense of peace, tranquility. And, he, and Joshua's a very old man. Now verse 2, chapter 23, he summons all the elders together with the leaders, the judges, the officials. He says, I'm very old. Verse 3, you yourselves have seen everything your Lord has done for you. All, the nation, all he's done for the nation for your sake. But it's the Lord who did this. He gives the credit to the, where it's deserving. He gives it quickly and consistently to the Lord. He never takes a bit of it himself. This, he says, this is the Lord's doing. It, is, it was the Lord God who fought for you. You get that down. End of verse 3. And you'll see, you'll see the victories in your own life. Let me tell you, when you realize the spiritual victories that you enjoy today, it was because the Lord fought for you. The Lord fought for me. The, chapter, uh, the book ends in chapter 24, where he makes the, and if you've not been flipping through the pages, go to that one. He says, now fear the Lord your God and serve him with all faithfulness, verse 14. He knew this. He knew that they could conquer the land, they could have the land, but he couldn't change the hearts of the people. He knew that they could establish the property that God had, but he said, I cannot change your hearts. Verse 14, the middle of that verse, he says, now throw away the gods of your ancestors worshipped on the other side of the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's saying, get rid of that past, let it go. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves to stay whom you will serve. He says, that, that's okay, just choose. Whether it's the gods of your ancestors beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, the land who you're living, because that's the false gods there at the day. But he says, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. He says, you just have to make up your mind. Stop this keeping your options open business. Make up your mind. I'm going to work for God. My life's going to matter for the kingdom, or it's not. My word to you is, he says, as for me and my household, we've made up our mind. It's going to be to serve the Lord. Joshua knows that even though he can walk through and possess the land, he cannot possess the hearts. Do you know what? It's no different today. God can bless you. He can give you. He can pour abundance on you. He can give you a job, a great family, great life, great country, great everything. He can't change your heart if you're not willing to partner with him. You have to choose this day whom you will serve, whether it's away from your past or what's happening consistently around you, whatever the religion of the day is, or you're going to serve the Lord. And you have to decide. No one can decide that for you. 
He's made up his mind, though. I know I'm going to serve the Lord. Now, about this time, you're asking yourself, I hardly know this guy Joshua, and I don't know his friend Moses. Where did they come from, and how did we get to Joshua? Well, great question. Glad I asked. Hold your hand in Joshua 1, like I am. Now, fold your Bible back to the table of contents. Can you do that? You have a table of contents at the front? Keep your hand in Joshua 1. You have Genesis, say it out loud with me. You have Genesis, say it out loud with me. Ready, together? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's good, right there, Deuteronomy, those five. Those are called the Pentateuch, Penta five. These are the first five books written, we believe, largely by Moses. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of the human race, beginning of the heavens and the earth, beginning of the human race. It's the beginning of this conflict that man has with, with uh, God because now man is created. It's an angelic conflict prior to that. But now it comes into the human realm. And now it's also the beginning of a new group of people that are God's chosen. God chooses a group of people to be his own. They're called Hebrews in the Old Testament. And then they're later called Jews. And they're called, in the land, they're called Israel. Okay? It's sometimes referred to as Canaan as well. There are different terms, depends on you know, when, when you're dating it, when, you know, who owns the property at the time. But that's basically God's chosen people at that chosen place. That's the book of beginnings. But when Genesis ends, God's chosen people have landed somewhere south of the promised land. In North Africa, this is a great time for a map here. Go, uh, and, and so this is the Mediterranean Sea you're seeing. And to the right is Israel. And to the south is the Suez Canal. You heard of that, right? And then in the lower left, that's Egypt. That's called North Africa. That's the north edge of Africa. Nile River's there. And all of God's people had been pushed down to that piece of property, and they were made slaves. And that's where Joshua was born. He was born as a slave. And then it was Moses who brings them out, and that's the story of the Exodus. You're saying, this is starting to make sense. Yes, it does. And Moses will take them out after they've been plagued and all kinds of curses have come, and they finally leave, and as they leave, Moses uh, finds favor with that Pharaoh. He leads them out through some treacherous times, and then they, they're ready to go into the promised land, but they don't, they don't obey God, so they end up wandering. And it's during that time that Leviticus is written, which is a, which is a restatement of the, of the details of the law. And by the way, there are different kinds of Old Testament law. There's uh, spiritual or eternal law, moral law. There would be civil law like we have today. We have speed limits and you have to be quiet after 10 o'clock at night. Those are laws that could change state to state, region to region, road to road. Um, and then you have moral laws. And, th and then you have what we call ceremonial laws, which aren't really, they're just laws that we practice, right? I had a practice that before we go to the dinner table, when I was a child, you always washed your hands. That was a kind of a civil law in our house. And... We had another one that was we, we wait for everybody to get there. We have prayer before we, we eat. And then the other rule we had when you eat was one foot on the floor. That was a joke, bad, I know. It was a, I came from a large family. Once it's in your mouth, it's yours. You wait certain civil laws at our table. Just, they were to us. But that's why you have to be careful sometimes when people pull Leviticus out and put it into the age of the church. A little difficult because it may just have been ceremonial. It may not have had anything to do with the moral code of God. 
may have just been the practice of the day. So you have Leviticus, then you have Numbers, which all happens during the Exodus, but during the Exodus, they want to count the people, and when they do that, they take a census, and that's the book of Numbers. Starting to make sense, isn't it? And Deuteronomy is the ancient book that is, by its definition, it just means restatement. So they're retelling the whole story of the Exodus and how they've wandered, and now they're ready to go into the Promised Land. And when they're ready to go into the Promised Land, Moses has led them this whole time, but he's going to die, and Joshua will be the new leader. Now, that kind of gives you some context to where, um, uh, to where this is headed, because now you can see this guy Joshua for who he really is. I want to give to you just some pictures because when, when you open the book of Joshua, chapter 1, this guy is already 75 or 80 years old, okay? He's not a young guy, and you need to get context of who he is and where he came from. So let me just give to you some handles so you understand him in the weeks ahead. First of all, I see Joshua as a slave. That's how he was born. He came from Ephraim. His name was Hoshea, son of Nun, Numbers chapter 13 tells us. Moses will rename him Hoshua or Yahshua, and it will be eventually evolved to that name, Joshua. Hoshea means salvation, and when you add the Joe to it, it's the front end of the word Jehovah, if you can see that. What that means is salvation. Now Jehovah, it means God saves, or Jehovah saves. So when Moses renames Joshua, he gives him a great name, and uh, they needed to know that Joshua would be the guy who would help these people because they lived in terribly oppressed times. Uh, Joshua grew up as a slave. He probably rarely saw his father. When he did, his, his father was probably well beaten down, probably neglected and beaten as an adult slave. He was forced to produce, for instance, more bricks or more crop with fewer resources uh, he lived at, at, with increased labor and fewer supplies, and the community hated the lineage, the ethnicity of this guy Joshua and the people he represented. They would have hated him, and they would have despised the people, although they got free labor from them. And the community had one local hero. That local hero's name was Moses. He himself was a Hebrew, but he grew up in Pharaoh's palace, and so he had a little bit of favor, a little bit of the ear of the, the Pharaoh or the king of the day. And because of that, he could go into the palace and say, let my people go. And that began the Exodus process. And he remained, Moses remained faithful to the Lord and to the Hebrew people, although he could speak to Egypt and represent these people. Now, it's important to note too, although it doesn't sound like it, it's important to note Joshua is firstborn. He's the oldest kid that, that the parents have. His dad's name is Nun, N-U-N, Nun. I think Nun was a believer in Jehovah God, and the reason I believe that is because Joshua survived. Joshua survived when during the Exodus, there was a time when Moses said, you're not letting us go, there's gonna be an angel that's gonna fly over, and if you don't paint the doors of your house with blood from an animal, then the firstborn of everything in that house is going to die. And the fact that Joshua lived tells me his dad painted the posts. His dad was a believer. And so it'd only be natural for Joshua, even though he's a slave, to be a, a, 
a guy who fears and honors the God of heaven. I see him not only as a slave, but I see him also as a soldier. Uh, Exodus 17 tells us that um, they've exited the country of Egypt. They're now headed to the promised land, but they have no country. And you have to understand, there's tens of thousands of people, and they're all going together. You can see the dust of them rise if you're on a mountain 10 miles away. You would see the dust of them coming, you know? And so they were easy pickings to be robbed and stolen from. And there's a, there's a group out there, the Amalekites, that want to do them harm. And so Moses says to Joshua, get yourself a little band of guys together and go out and fight them. Before they kill us, you fight them before they come on to us. What I find interesting about this, this is kind of scary. If you're nomadic, you've been a slave, you don't have a country, you run away from the country that you were enslaved in, but you don't have a place to go yet, Right? And now you're going to go out and fight another country? Okay, if we retreat, where do we go? Have you thought about that? <laughs> I have. It's not a happy thing. In other words, there's no where to retreat. You have to win this battle. Because if you don't, we are no more. There is nowhere to go. I see him as a great, valiant soldier. And he went, and Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword, not afraid to use it. Thirdly, I see him not only as a soldier, but also as a servant. Moses would pitch a tent, and it was called the Tent of the Meeting, and that's where he would go to meet with God. And he would go there probably to talk to God, what we call prayer today, and God would talk to him like one speaks to a person who is a friend. Isn't that cool? And Moses would come and go to that camp, but what I find interesting is that Joshua would stay at the tent, which tells me something about Joshua. God would speak to Moses like a friend, and Joshua would hang out there. I believe Joshua wants the close things of God, wants to walk with God, wants to be in the presence of the Lord. He is a servant. But not only is he a servant, Joshua, I see him also as a spy, because when they're about to go into that promised land, Moses will say, I need 12 spies. You're going to go in. You're going to give a report. So they go in to give the report, and they see huge crops, but with that they see huge guys, and they come back, and 10 of the guys say, we can't beat them. They're bigger than us. We'll never, we'll never make it. And Joshua and Caleb are the only two who say, no, we can beat them. The Lord promised the land. We just have to trust the Lord. They'd forgotten. He'd already gotten them through the desert, had already gotten them through the sea, He'd already saved their hides when they were coming out of Egypt. How could you forget the Lord now? Joshua and Caleb said, let's take the land. The other 10 said no. And because of that, they ended up wandering in the desert for that whole generation to die off. It took 40 years for that generation to die off. And if you could imagine, every day they're moving and every day they're, they're burying people who are dying. And every day they bury more people. And finally, when the last one dies, the only ones that are left are Moses Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones who are of age. And then finally Moses dies, and God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you lead them into the promised land. So I see him as a spy, but I see him then as a successor. Joshua chapter 1 tells us, Moses, my servant, is dead. But that's not the first that it's happened. Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting where I'll commission him. So Moses is dying. God's choosing the next leader. But here's, this is kind of the catch. 
Joshua has seen Moses lead, and he knows there are days they like Moses. You know, out of 40 years, there were a few days they liked Moses. There were most days they didn't like Moses. And most days they moped around about Moses. And a good number of days they didn't even listen to Moses. And Joshua says, God, you, really, you want me to lead this? He knows what that leadership looks like. By the way, that's no different than today. We love a leader, hate a leader. Love a leader, turn on the leader. That's what happened to Moses' day. It should not surprise us when it happens again and again and again. It's the nature of humans. So Joshua enters the lead role knowing just exactly what's going to happen. And he knows he has the blessing of the Lord. He has the blessing of the Lord, but he also knows he has the burden of the people. Now, it makes a whole lot more sense. When you go back to Joshua 1, go there, would you? And verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. It's over for Moses. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them. He is not about to tell God, oh God, we can't cross the Jordan. It's too deep. It's too wide. You know, he's not... God will find a way, I don't know how that will be, if a miracle bridge, trees will fall on the way, rocks will rise, we don't know what will happen, God will find a way for us to get across that river. Verse five, and so it was with Moses, I'll be with you. I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. God promises that to Joshua. By the way, he promises that same promise to you and me in the book of Hebrews. So he says, be strong and courageous. That's the big issue. Be strong, be courageous, because you'll lead these people to inherit the land. So here we have this guy, born into slavery, grew up with no dignity, escapes the oppressor, only to wander, lives for decades as a nomad, loyally follows the unpopular leader, Moses. Now he becomes the leader. What are we supposed to learn from this? Is this really worth doing? What are we supposed to learn? There are three things I want us to learn before we go. Number one is this. The life handed to me, first lesson, the life handed to me does not determine my future. You cannot pick where you came from. You can't pick the city you were born in. You can't pick who your mother gave birth to in being you. You can't change that you have a brother or a sister or that you don't. You can't change your past. You can't change your roots. What gets handed to you is what you get. What you can change is your future. You cannot help so much of life, but you have to see so it to let that go. You have to let go of the past in order to embrace the future. So you have to get your past into the past and don't bring your past into your present. Hope you get that. Some of us need to hear that because we're still stuck in the past. And when you say, Well, I can't because you don't understand where I come from. You don't understand where I was born or my school I got to or my mother or my dad, my education, my uh, educational opportunity, where I came from. You don't, okay, you know my response to that is? Tell it to the slave, Joshua, who grew up with a dad who he rarely saw and when he did, his dad was beaten down. Tell that to the slave, Joshua, who became a servant, became a soldier, who lived most of his life, adult life, without even property. 
he wandered. Don't allow the past to determine what your future looks like. Number two, God is not done with me yet. Second lesson, God is not done with me. You are 55, 60 years of age, 65 years of age. You've been passed by for a promotion. And you say, dang, I missed that promotion, only to realize, uh uh-oh, that's not the first time I got passed by. Now you're seeing a pattern and you realize, I've topped out, and I'm not going to go any further, at least here, and they're just going to let me cruise, and my life is pretty well done. And I say to you, God is not done with you yet. And in history, just go back and read human history, some of the best books written were written by people who never even picked up a pen or pencil or went to a typewriter until they were in their 50s and 60s. Some of the greatest leaders, some of the greatest inventors did not start until it was their second wind or third wind in life. So God's not done with you yet. As long as you're breathing, you have a future. You have a place to go. You have something to do. And when you say, I think I'm too old to be doing this, tell that to Joshua, who was probably 75 or 80, when he crossed the Jordan River, and they carried rocks from the river to start a memorial. And then he took the hill country, and then the foothills, and then the mountains, and then the valleys. And then he fought battles. And every night, he was setting up pegs in the tent and tearing them down to go to new property. Okay? That's a guy in his 80s. Third lesson that we learn is that my greatest challenge, it's it's inside my head. It's not out there. It's not the economy, and it's not my upbringing, and it's not what's happening in the dynamics. The biggest challenge is what's going on inside my head. It's the challenge to be courageous and to be strong. It's the challenge to live above the circumstances, to face life with vitality and energy, and to believe that God is out for something good. And here's the really good news. That kind of courage tends to be contagious. When you exercise that courage, then other people around you begin to exercise that courage. There's a collective kind of faith that happens when you you face the greatest challenge, which is inside your own head, your own thinking. And when you doubt, and when you back away, and when you rest and say, we've conquered enough, I'm going to stop now, I'm just going to rest a while. When you do that, that's when the rigor mortis starts to set in. That's when you begin to die a little bit. So Joshua reminds us, Chapter 1, verse 6, be strong, you be courageous, because you're going to lead these people to the place where I'm taking you, and I don't know where God is taking you. For him, it was this property. For you, it's something else. God has something. That'd be a great question to be asking yourself this week. What is it, God, you, you want me to make a difference in this world that will last for eternity? Where is that? What is that? What are you up to? Where do I need to exercise this kind of courage? Be strong and be very courageous. About a decade ago, I went in to get a physical from a doctor who should be in jail for what he did to me. He put me on a treadmill. He wired me up. You don't mind. They they took blood. They looked in my eyes, and you know he did all kinds of stuff. Made fun of me. You know, he's filling out the form. Then he puts me on this treadmill, but it was a treadmill I'd never been on before, and it was a decade ago. But you've seen those treadmills where people make, you know, on YouTube, 
total idiots of themselves. They got the idea from my physical, like a decade ago. I, I got on this thing, but I, I was fighting it. And, but on top of that, they, first of all, they dressed me in a scanty gown. I don't know what that thing is, but it, it, isn't, it isn't right. I should have wrapped it around my waist, you know, instead of tied it around my neck. My neck is not what I'm bothered with. People see my neck, if you get my drift. <laughs> so I'm in this gown. All my clothes are gone, so I can't run out of the building. That's another strategy they have. They take all your clothes away, so you, your keys. You can't, you can't escape during the physical. So I get on this thing. It takes off. Well, I'm fighting it. He goes, you're fighting it. I know I'm fighting it, because it's, it's, it, I don't know how to work this thing. And, well... So he says, hold on to the handle. So I hold on to the handle, but he didn't tell me to keep running. So I, I held on, and I, of course, do the face palm onto the dashboard of this thing. Now i got like a gash here. Now I'm mad. You know, now I'm, I'm, embar- I'm beyond embarrassed. Now I'm mad. And he goes, well, your heart rate's really going up. Well, of course it's going up, you stupid. This thing is not stopping. Slow it down for a while so I can hang on. So I can... He goes, you, do you know how to run? I say, yes, I know how to run. Put me on a street. I'm, t- I'm telling him this while I'm on the treadmill, still going. And he goes, well, let me slant. So then they slant it. I mean, they're doing different things. Just when I get used to it, they change it. They change the speed, the, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, f- finally, I, I don't remember what happens, but a- anyway, I, I yell out to him. I'm doing the best I can. And he goes, there goes your blood pressure. I mean, he because now I'm, I'm angry at the machine, stupid machine. Well, then he makes the statement that is unbelievable to me. I've been on this thing for like four minutes. And he goes, okay, one more minute to go. Give it your best now. Okay, I've been giving it my best for four minutes. This is, I, I've, been, I've been fighting with this machine, and I'm, you know, my shins are bleeding, my forehead has got a gash in it, my hands are white-knuckled, my legs are, you know, I, I, I can't seem to get the pace of this thing. And, and, but I've got wires taped to every part of my body to check everything. And he says, give it your very best, you know, give it your best shot. And I'm, I'm giving it my best already, dude. I finally said to him something, when I got off, I pulled the wires off. Like, I'm from Chicago, man. Where's your, which car is yours out in the lot? It's one of those kind of things. I'm going he just kind of laughed, but sometimes you think you're doing your very best. You're, you're absolute, okay? See verse 6? Be strong and courageous. Okay, I am. I am being that right now. And it, what does he say? Verse 7. Be strong and, what's it say? Very courageous. I am, dang it. And he repeats it. You, hear, you see what's happening? He's stepping it up. He's going, but I am giving it 100%. I don't think so. I think we can squeeze more out. And you know what that doc did that day? He, he, by saying, you got one minute. Not, then I did. I actually produced better the last minute because I knew I only had one minute before I can do something to him, you know. <laughs> I got real focused. So he repeats it. You be strong and very courageous. Number three, verse nine have I not commanded you? Be strong. In other words, if you're missing this, he's saying it again. Now, when someone tells me something once, that's important. When you hear it twice, but if God tells you something three times, it's going to be on the final exam. Okay? And so 
if you're dying and headed to heaven because you trust Jesus, you know what's going to happen? He's not going to ask you in heaven, did you trust Jesus? Because you're in heaven. Everybody there trusts Jesus, right? What they're going to ask you is, what's your courageous moment? What did you do that really mattered for God? What did you do that scared the skinny out of you, that made you really trust Jesus in a great way? What did you do that mattered for eternity? Because I want to do something that matters. I want to do the right thing. I want to do it with the right attitude. I want to be an influence for good, but I want something to matter for eternity. Because when you get to heaven, I want to go to heaven and I want to tell a story about how I was scared, but Jesus saw me through and I trusted God and he saw me and it didn't end up the way I thought it would, but he gets the glory, but I got to see it. And of course it was scary, but it's my courageous moment. That's your, that's your war story when you get to heaven. You're going to have one of those. Or you're going, well, no, I just kind of floated along kind of the path of least resistance. No, you want a courageous, courageous moment. You have to decide that now. That's what you want. Well, like you, I, uh, I get most of my news online. And in the radio, I'm driving, I get some. But occasionally I read the newspaper. I don't read it all the time. I just don't. We get the paper, and I read it once or twice a week. This last week I read it, and it was a God moment for me. There's, there's just stupid stuff happening in society, right? I mean, it's just dumb stuff. It's on the cover of the morning paper every day. Um, being from Chicago, uh, the joke among ministers is this, because the Chicago news is this. We have a phrase in the, at the ministerial group when, in Chicago, and was, if it bleeds, it leads. Because that, that was what the evening news was. Didn't matter if it was TV or if it was the cover of the newspaper. If it bleeds, it leads. I've come to the conclusion, too, the dumber you are, the more coverage you get. So if you're an idiot, and if you're a fool, you get 15 minutes of fame on the cover of the paper. Okay? Well, it was one of those days where an idiot, a sinful, rebellious, selfish idiot, did something stupid, hurt a lot of people, he made the cover of the paper. Well, so I flipped through. On page five of that same day's paper, I learned about a guy by the name of General Frank Peterson. Now, you don't know that name, nor did I until a week ago. General Frank Peterson passed away, 83 years of age, age of my dad, your dad, your granddad, old guy. He's on page five as a general. He was the first black general of the United States Marines. This guy in the 1950s became a pilot. He flew 350 missions over Korean, in the Korean War, which was a dastardly war, and then Vietnam. 350 missions. That's probably more chances to die than all of us put together. Being the first black First, then lieutenant, then he works his way up to general. The guy was also a civil rights leader, dealt with injustices, prejudicial stuff, procedural stuff, advancement. The guy was stellar at everything that he did. And I'm sure he has his pimples. I'm sure if you were to talk to his wife, she's, oh, yeah, he wasn't easy to live with. Or, I mean, I, everybody has their moment. I don't know anything about him other than this. He did a lot of great things in his life and lived to be 83 years of age, but he didn't just fly off to heaven or to eternity without making a huge difference. His 
buddies, his fellow commanders said of him, these are the quotes, these are the ways they described him. They viewed him as the pioneer, role model, and stellar leader. He went on to lead a Quantico for a season. I mean, this guy is a wonderful leader. But when he dies, does he get page one? No. Some idiot does. Some fool does. And the general who made all the right decisions, not all, but a lot of right decisions, a lot of good ways, he gets page five. I closed the paper and I said to myself, alone in my own dining room, I said, I guess I have to decide what page I want to be on. And you have to decide that too. Do you want to be on page one as the fool who makes a statement or do you want to be on page five and you've made a real significant difference? Guy served his country and made us a better place and he provided a great way for thousands of others who would follow in his place. And he's a real hero in my mind. But you know what? I, I don't know his fate. I don't know much about him. I just know this. You have to choose. You want to make a flash news in the, in the news, your 15 minutes of fame on page one, the evening news start? Or do I want to do something that really matters? Because that's going to take a measure of courage. And you want that measure of courage to matter, not just for this life, but for the influence of the next generation and for eternity. That's the kind of life I want to live. And Joshua's going to help us do that. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll pick up this story next week. I can hardly wait to get to it. Amen? All right, let's bow for prayer and let's stand as we pray. Glorious Father, you have been good to us and we, uh, we know that full well. Bless us, we pray. I pray that you would put within us the kind of spirit of courage that, that stimulates within us wholesome thinking that we do the right thing and we do it when no one else does it. We, we have the, the strength of character to not only do the right thing but to face our fears and to do the right thing with the right attitude knowing that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world and, and that that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so we know that we are not alone. We have divine help to make a difference for good for this world and for eternity. For some in the room, the biggest decision of greatest courage will be to just embrace Christ. And if that would happen today, Lord, we'd be delighted. For others of us, it's just to make the next step, a courageous step forward to make their moment really count for eternity. And Lord, I pray we would be difference makers we live the life you've called us to live because we're meant for this. We were meant for this. Bless these dear people. May you uh, make your face shine upon them. Give to them peace as they stand for you. In Christ's wonderful name, we pray these things. The church says amen.